Well, welcome to Ridge Church. If you're new with us, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're just really glad that uh, you're joining us. It uh, probably isn't news to any of us that there's a great deal of brokenness in our world. Uh, I mean, you name it. You talk about uh, wars and famines and totalitarian uh, dictatorships around the world. Think about mental health issues here uh, closer to home, about health issues, physical health issues. We talk about broken marriages and broken relationships. I mean, everywhere that we look in our world, there's all sorts of brokenness. In fact, I was just reading uh, the other day that the suicide uh, in Canada, the suicide rate is on average 11 people a day, over 4,000 people a year in our own nation who commit suicide. And the opioid crisis that we're experiencing in our nation means that there are more people dying of opioid crises or opioid overdoses than there are people who are dying from car accidents. And there's just brokenness everywhere in our world. And some of it's like far away. Some of it's like way out there. Others of it is like right in our backyard. And sometimes the brokenness is right in the middle of our own lives. And as followers of Jesus, the way that we're called to respond to brokenness in our world is not just to hide from it or to shelter ourselves from it, but rather to engage it with goodness. And goodness is the the facet or the the part of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to examine and talk about today. But surprisingly, goodness is more difficult to define than you would think it is. And so we're going to use the first part of our time together to define what goodness is, what biblical goodness is, and then we want to talk about what that looks like played out in the world around us. Uh, the, The whole concept of goodness is one that we struggle with in our culture because in our culture, which values the individualism so very highly, we've kind of come to this place where we uh, have told one another each person gets to define what goodness is, which means that we don't really end up with a, a common understanding of what goodness is and that each person decides for themselves. And, of course, that leads to all kinds of confusion about what goodness truly is. Uh, Philip Kennison writes this. We find it increasingly difficult to discuss what used to be called the common good. In its place, we have substituted the notion that individuals should be free to determine for themselves what is good and right in any particular situation. Although there are some legal boundaries that would restrain us from doing what we agree is wrong to do, there is little that would help us know what is right or good to do. As a result, the good and the right are increasingly being reduced to what is legal. In short, if one has not broken any laws, one is a good or a moral person. Now, that may be the case for the culture around us, but that certainly isn't the case for we who have given our lives to follow Jesus. You see, we who are following Jesus, we are expected to live by a biblical understanding of what goodness is. And to understand what that means for us, both as individuals and corporately together, it means that we need to go back to the very source of goodness. And the Scriptures make it uh, abundantly clear, incredibly clear, that the source of all goodness In fact, the only source of goodness is God himself. This is the first thing that we need to understand. God alone is good. And we see this in the consistent testimony of the witness of Scripture. All throughout Scripture, time and time again, throughout the Psalms and the First Chronicles, and all over the place in the Old Testament, you hear this refrain over and over. It says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And then in the New Testament, I mean, there's this place where this guy comes up to Jesus and he falls on his knees before Jesus and he looks up and he, at Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus begins his response this way. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, the first thing we need to understand is that God alone is the source of goodness. And too often, Christians who have not read or understood their Bible correctly misunderstand this. They, they buy into the idea of the world around us that goodness is something that we just naturally have inside us. In fact, sometimes I'll look on my Facebook feed and, and there from a, from a Christian person, a person with good intentions, there'll be something like, you know, look at the goodness within you and be the goodness in the world around you. And I'll read that and be like, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. We are not by nature good. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who was, before he met Jesus, who was one of the top Pharisees in his day, so he knew a great deal about trying to be good and seeking to live a good life. Before he came to Jesus, that was what his life was all about. He writes this in Romans chapter 7. He says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sound familiar? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The Apostle Paul says this, nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. You see, goodness does not naturally come from within us. The source of goodness is God himself. Now, that doesn't mean that we are incapable of doing good things or that we don't have the capacity for that. You see, we're created in God's image, and therefore, because God is good, we are able, we have the capacity to do good. That in spite of the fact that every aspect of who we are has been marred by sin. What we need in order to do good is Jesus in our lives. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul explains how this works. He says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You understand what the apostle is saying here, right? He's saying that you, you were saved not because you are good in and of yourself, not because of your goodness or your righteousness or the good things that you've done, but rather only by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. But because of that, as a result of that, the expectation is that out of that, because we're created in the image of God and redeemed by Jesus, that out of that will flow good works, he says, that were uh, prepared for us in advance to do. And, and by that, he means specifically for you to do, for me to do, for us together to do. Not, not some sort of vague kind of good works out there, but specific good works. It's like in my home. In my home, every week, Nula, my wife, makes a meal plan. And it's prepared in advance. And the expectation is that on Friday night, that Jonathan is going to cook the meal. That's not some magic kind of general thing. It's like, no, specifically, Jonathan, you're going to cook the meal. And, and by Nula's grace, she goes and buys the food and has it there. And because I'm not a great cook, she helps me if I get trouble in trouble. But the expectation is that I'm going to specifically do something that is prepared in advance for me to do. And in the end, hopefully, it's a good meal. And the same is true for you when it comes to what God wants. There are specific good works that God expects you to do, that he has designed you for and gifted you for and has prepared for you to do 
because of what Jesus has done in your life. See, here's the, here's the second thing we need to know, and that's this. God expects you to do good works. So, the source of goodness is God himself, first of all. Secondly, his expectation is because of the work of Jesus in your life that you will do good works, which leads to this third question is that, so how then do we know exactly what that is? And the answer is that we need to be guided by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to know what that good is. So, yeah, this is the third point. Knowing what is good comes from the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our life. Once again, the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 2, he writes this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we submit to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our life when it comes to understanding what good is all about. Uh, and that means that we need to, to be known by Jesus. We need to know Jesus. We need to be in the Word of God. And we just need to, to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in what, biblically, what biblical goodness is all about. And it's important that we have a biblical, a right understanding, a, a good theology of what goodness is, because otherwise the danger is that we get these wrong notions of what's good. And there are several wrong notions that Christians and people in general have a tendency to fall into. The first is this. Goodness is not moral superiority. You know, one of the dangers, particular, particularly for we who are Christians, is that because we try to live differently than the world around us, that we can begin to look down on people. Like, oh, I, I'm good because I don't go to the places they go. I don't talk the language they talk. I don't do the things they do. Therefore, somehow, I'm good. But that's not a biblical understanding of what goodness is. I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul just finished explaining to us in this last passage that I read. We're all sinners. We can't do good on our own outside of what Jesus has done in our life. Nothing good dwells in our flesh. As the uh, writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So let's be so careful that, that we don't confuse some twisted sense of moral superiority for biblical goodness. They're not the same thing. Secondly, goodness is not comparative righteousness. You know, another danger, especially in our individualistic culture, is that we define goodness for ourselves simply by the fact that somehow we think we're a little better than the person next to us. I'm a good person because I'm not like them. I'm a good person because I didn't do what they did. But that's not, not biblical goodness either. Jesus tells a, a parable to warn us against that kind of thinking. He says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a man who did a lot of good, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see, the temptation so often is for us to, to define goodness by the fact that we're not as bad as someone else. 
But that is not either what biblical goodness is all about. And then there's one more mistake that we often make, and that's this. Goodness is not some sort of naive idealism. Goodness is not some sort of idea that we should just be able to wave a magic wand and everything go right. Or more likely that, that God should just wave a magic wand and everything should be made perfect. That, that's not a biblical concept of goodness either. And people, people wrestle with this all, all the time. There's a story told about Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. Uh, it's told by uh, Walter Isaacson, his biographer. He says that when Steve Jobs was 13 years old, it was 1968, and in uh, part of Nigeria called Biafra, there was a wicked, brutal civil war going on. Uh, millions of people were affected by both famine, and, and many were killed. And in uh, the July issue of Life magazine, there was a picture of two children in, in great distress from that part of the world on the cover of the magazine. And in that July, uh, Steve Jobs took that magazine, and he tucked it into his jacket, and he went to church. He went to Sunday school, and there he met his pastor. And he said to his pastor, he said, uh, Pastor, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do? And his pastor responded, of course. God knows everything. And then he pulled out this picture of these children suffering in, in Biafra. And he said, well, does God know about this and what is going to happen to these children? And you know, whatever the answer to that question was, it was not the kind that, that suited, that, that helped Steve Jobs. And he never went to church again. You see, the problem that Steve Jobs and many people have is they misunderstand the idea of what God's goodness is all about. They think that God should just wave a magic wand and everything will go back to being good and perfect and right. It's not how it works. Everything was good and perfect and right in the Garden of Eden. That's how God originally designed everything. But it was we who sinned and turned our backs on God. And as a result, this sin has marred every part of our life and there's brokenness all over our world. And what God's goodness is about is the process of slowly but surely redeeming and restoring and renewing all of creation till it goes back to the way that it was always meant to be. But that's a process. And it's a process that began with Jesus. In fact, the apostle Peter, when he met uh, with the first Gentiles, and began to share with them the message of what God was doing in the world and what Jesus was all about. At one point, as he's talking to them, Peter says this. He explains this in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You see, what, when Jesus came, he became, began this process of, of redeeming and restoring and renewing all of the world around him. And that's what the Bible understands. That's a, a biblical understanding of what goodness is all about. You see, the healing that Jesus did was restoring people back to the way that God intended for them to live. It was about setting them free from the things that, that had enslaved them. And see, Jesus embodied, he was the picture of what goodness is all about. So, let me, let me define now for us what three things that define what biblical goodness is about. Number one, biblical goodness is restorative. Biblical goodness is about restoring the world back to the way that God always intended it to be before sin marred it. And you see this in your own life. Look, in your own life, 
biblical goodness is not like, oh, suddenly I got all this money and, and I can go on holidays and buy a boat. And I mean, all that's great, but that's not biblical goodness. Biblical goodness is when there's love in your world and hope and forgiveness and peace, those things that come from God restoring your life back to the way that it's meant to be. Whether or not you've got a lot of money, whether or not you can go on holidays, whether or not you have a, a, you know, a cabin somewhere, that's, that's blessings, but goodness is your life restored to the way it's meant to be. And the same is true in our workplaces and our schools and in our city. God's goodness is when those places begin to be restored to the place that people live and thrive and flourish the way that God always intended people to live and thrive and flourish. As, Walter, uh, as Al Walters writes, it is quite striking that virtually all of the basic words describing salvation in the Bible imply a return to an originally good state or situation. So listen, biblical goodness is not, you know, about uh, sort of staying out of trouble and sort of being bland and, and just being a goody two-shoes, being nice. That's not what biblical goodness is about. Biblical goodness, rather, is rich and redemptive and powerful and transformative. It's about restoring the world to the way that God intends it to be. Joe Beers writes this. The truth, though, is that the call to goodness is not just a call to follow some rules and be, quote, a better person. The call to goodness is a total reversal of the fragmented, broken, incompetent state of the world as it currently stands. You see, that's what Jesus calls you and I to do. Because that's what Jesus did. When he came, he immediately began to restore things. He taught stuff for sure. But he began to heal people and set them free from the bondage of their life and help them understand this is what life under God is really meant to be all about. You see, he set them free from the things that, that debilitated them and trapped them. And then ultimately, he made a way through his own death and resurrection so that they could be right in a restored relationship with God. And so if we've experienced God's goodness in our lives, if we are expected to live out goodness, that's the kind of things that God expects from us. Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, we as the church of Jesus Christ, called to this place and this time, are to seek to see the lives of so many people in our city set free and restored and renewed to the way that God always intended life to be, to see them set free from the debilitating things in their lives, and ultimately to find a restored relationship with God himself. And that's something that we do both as individuals, but that we're also called to do together corporately. In fact, in many ways, it's more powerful as together, corporately, as a community of followers of Jesus, that we seek to do goodness in the world around us. In fact, I was reading uh, the other day about a church uh, down in New Zealand, in the city of Christ Church there, that sought to practice biblical goodness in their city. And so they went out and they began to ask, what are the needs in our city? Where is it that we can serve our city? How can we bring restoration and freedom to the lives of the people in our city? And as they began to know their city better, they learned that one of the issues in their city is, is that a great number of the people in their city 
were trapped in bondage to the consumer debt. They, they just bought so many things by credit card that they got trapped in this cycle of never being able to get out of it. And as they looked at that, they began to realize that within their own church, there were many followers of Jesus who had extra money. They had savings. But it was only in bank accounts that were earning 1% or 2%. And they were willing to use those savings for the sake of the gospel in their city. And so what they did is they invited the people in their church, the believers in their church, to invest anywhere between $100 and $100,000 in this sort of bank that they set up. And then they trained 130 people that they called budget counselors to offer training and support and resources. And then they invited the people in their city who were trapped in this consumer debt to come and to receive 0% interest-free loans from them at the church so that they could get out from under the, the, the oppression of this consumer debt that they had. And the expectation was that to receive that loan, they had to meet once a week with these budget counselors to help them manage their finances. And what happened is that they began to meet with those people. They began to talk not only about budget, but about life, and ultimately about spiritual things. And the way they served the city opened up the door for all kinds of amazing conversations. And over the course of five years, that church helped the people in their city pay off over $2.6 million in consumer debt with a, with a return rate, a payback rate on the loans that they gave of 98%. This beautiful picture of the goodness of God being poured out in the city by a local church. And in fact, that same church then began to teach English to new immigrants, and they began to, to provide childcare and after-school programs for the people in their city. And they got involved in the local arts community. And they started a midweek service, uh, a worship service for people who had significant mental health issues. And the other churches in their city saw what was happening and they began to join in. And, and they served as well as a place for child care centers. So that at one point, 10% of all of the child care centers in that city were hosted by churches. And the city noticed. And the city came to them and said, you know, we want you as followers of Jesus, to have a, a say and an influence on all of the child care that's happening within our city. And it's this amazing, beautiful picture of what happens when the people of God seek to do good in their city. And the interesting thing, I mean, the, the, the ultimate motive of what they were doing was to introduce people to Jesus. But the goodness that they did was never just as an ulterior motive. In other words, they weren't good. They didn't do good deeds just as an ulterior motive to get people to give their life to Jesus. Because if that's the case, then if people don't give their life to Jesus, then they feel like they should just stop doing the good. Plus, if people are a project, first of all, they can sense it from a mile away. And they want nothing to do with it. And secondly, it doesn't speak to the dignity of the people that you're trying to serve. You know, we do good works not so that people will become Christians, but rather... That because we are Christians. You know, we don't serve to convert people. Rather, we serve because we have been converted and changed and transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus in our lives. Ron Sider writes this. Our social concern dare not be a gimmick designed to bribe people to become Christians. Social action has its own independent validity. We do it because the Creator wants everyone to enjoy the good creation. At the same time, when our genuine compassion 
also has an evangelistic dimension. We rejoice. Again and again, that is exactly what happens when we truly care for the needy and stand with the oppressed who seek justice. You see, when we do good for our city, when we do good, biblical good for the world around us, not everyone is going to give their life to follow Jesus. But we know this because that was Jesus' own experience, right? I mean, Jesus healed 10 lepers, set them free from this debilitating disease that totally affected their life, and only one came back to him. And he only came to thank him. It doesn't even say that he followed Jesus. And yet, Jesus healed them because he's restoring life to the way it's meant to be. The question for us as a church is how should we, both individually but also corporately, how should we show goodness in a city around us? How should we serve our city around us? You know, we, we've been wrestling with that. We've been praying about that. We've been asking God, how do we know our city? Help us to know the needs here so that we, as Ridge Church, can serve our city and, and do biblical goodness so that ultimately people can know Jesus. But then no matter what, they're restored to following and walking in life the way that God has intended it to be. Biblical goodness, first of all, is restorative. But then secondly, this, biblical goodness is confrontational. Again, don't get the impression that biblical goodness is about kind of being timid and just nice and making sure that everything's okay. That's not the biblical picture of goodness. Biblical goodness sees that something is, someone is being oppressed and it rises up to stand against the oppressor. Biblical goodness sees where evil and wrong stand against what God called good and right, and it takes action. You know, uh, earlier this year, we saw uh, this movie about Harriet Tubman. Uh, Harriet Tubman, if you don't know, uh, was a, a black slave who escaped from slavery in the southern states in the year 1849. And at great risk to her own life, she uh, followed the underground, underground Railroad until she arrived in the northern states. But when she got there, when she received her freedom, she realized that she could not leave so many other slaves stuck in slavery in the South. And so multiple times over the years, she risked her own life and her safety to sneak back down deep into the southern United States and to lead other slaves back to the freedom that was found in the northern states. It's a brilliant picture of what biblical goodness is all about. The Apostle Paul, again, in Romans 12, 21, writes this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in 1 Peter 2, 15 and 16, he says this, for it is God's will but that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. You see, biblical action, sorry, biblical goodness calls us to action. We can't just sit in our beautiful homes with the freedom that we have in Christ and try to shelter ourselves from all of the brokenness that's out there. Rather, because of what Jesus has done in our life, the expectation, the call on our life is to go and to practice biblical goodness in a world of brokenness. Hey, that's the second thing. Here's the last thing about biblical goodness. Goodness is beautiful. Anywhere that you see true biblical goodness, life being restored back to the way that God always intended to be, anywhere that you see that, you will see beauty. Um, lady named Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Howard lived in a rough part of Houston 
in a tiny little apartment, bad neighborhood with her eight grandchildren. And by God's grace, she got connected with a Christian organization called Habitat for Humanity that set out to help her build a little home for her and her kids in a good place that she could call her own. And uh, the way it works is she put in a bunch of sweat equity. She helped build that home along with a bunch of people she never met who came and served to build that home. And the guy who led that whole project to help her, his name was Tom. And one Christmas Eve, Tom showed up at her uh, doorstep and said, Dorothy, it's time. It's ready. Get your grandkids, pack the stuff you got, put it in the truck, and we're going to the new place. And she was so excited, but also nervous because it seemed that in her life, every time something good was going to happen, there was a hitch. But she and the, the grandkids, they packed what little they had, they piled into the truck, and as they drove there, Tom said, ah, Dorothy, there's something I need to tell you. Dorothy was like, oh, I knew there was going to be a hitch. Tom said, because it's Christmas Eve, we weren't able to get the gas hooked up to your new home, which means that there will be, uh, the stove doesn't work and there'll be no heat. So tomorrow, Christmas Day, you know, it's going to be cold. And, uh, and she thought to herself, she was disappointed. She's like, oh, she had hoped to finally celebrate Christmas together with her grandchildren with a warm meal and a beautiful warm house. But she said, it didn't matter. I mean, she's just so excited to be in this new place. And they were accustomed to not having a lot of stuff and to sleeping together in beds. She said, we'll just sleep together in the beds to stay warm. She got there to the new house. And as the grandkids were beginning to unpack the stuff, she just walked in. And she just walked into this room, her own room, with her own bed. She hadn't had that for so long. And, and she looked into the kids' room, the grandkids' room, and there were bunk beds. Every single kid had their own place. And then she walked down the hall, looked in this room where it was her own washer and dryer. For the first time in so long, she wouldn't have to haul huge loads of laundry down to the laundromat and spend all day in a hot laundromat with quarters and trying to reserve you know, washing machines, she could just do it right there in her own house. And she walked into the kitchen, new fridge and stove, and this huge empty space where there should be a kitchen table, but, but they couldn't afford one. And she promised herself the first thing she would do when she saved enough money was to buy a big kitchen table that all of her grandkids could sit around. And while she was looking at all this, Tom came walking into the house, and tucked under his arm was a crock pots and and uh, space heater, electric space heaters and electric blankets. And she said, what's this? And Tom said, oh, I went home and raided our place so that you could have a hot meal tomorrow and that you could have a warm blanket to sleep under tonight and a space heater so the house would be warm. And blew her away. The people that she didn't know would sacrifice for her so that she could experience this kind of a, a place for her and her grandkids. They celebrated Christmas together a few days later, still kind of in a daze that she was living in this place. The doorbell rings, and she goes to the door, and there's a delivery man, and she says, I didn't order anything. She says, oh, no, somebody ordered it for you. And here, this young, newlywed couple had been there at the, at the dedication of her house on Christmas Eve. and They'd seen that she didn't have a kitchen table. And so this new, newly uh, married couple, went out and they bought for her a beautiful kitchenette set and had it delivered to her house. And you know, around that, that kitchen table, her, great, uh, her eight grandchildren sat and experienced life. Around that kitchen table, she hosted, in the years to come, family, uh, family get-togethers and neighborhood parties and reunions and, and holiday feasts. And, and her, great, her eight grandchildren gave her 41 great-grandchildren. 
those 41 uh, great-grandchildren gave her 44 great-great-grandchildren. And throughout the years, they sat and gathered and, and ex experienced the joy of life together in the, that place. You see, everywhere where, where the goodness of God is, there's beauty, there's restoration, there's such good things. And the most beautiful is when lives are transformed by the power of the gospel. Philip Yancey in his book, What Good Is God, uh, writes this. In my interviews with addicts and prostitutes, I heard several dozen wrenching accounts of the power of evil to control and destroy lives and the power of God to overcome that evil. I wish skeptics like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins had the same chance to hear stories of transformation from social outcasts who hit the very bottom and now credit God for the strong grace that saved them in the most literal sense. What good is God? He rescued me from sex slavery and drug addiction. God brought me back to life. As one commentator uh, said, goodness is a witness and a signpost to the divine. You see, wherever you see the goodness of God at work in the world around us, you will see beauty. So, how can we cultivate our hearts so this facet of the fruit of the Spirit grows in our lives? First of all, we need to soak in the Word of God. Do you want to know what goodness really is? Do you want goodness in your life? Then you need to know Jesus and be known by Jesus. Then you need to understand who God is. Then you need to go deep into the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit can help you define biblical goodness, not as the way the world does, not however you want it to be, but the way that God intends for us to live out biblical goodness. First thing you need to do is soak in the Word of God. Number two, imitate the saints. And by that, I don't mean, you know, the saints of 100 years ago. I mean the saints around us right now. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. In the same way, if you want to practice goodness in your life, then look around. Who are the other followers of Jesus who are doing it? And look and see, how are they doing it? I mean, call them up. Go for a walk with them. Say, how is it that you're doing this? How do you fit this kind of goodness in the midst of a crazy, busy world with all the pressures in your life? What is it that you do? And learn from them and imitate them so that you learn, too, how it is that you can practice biblical goodness in this world around us. And along those same lines, you should read about the followers of Jesus who do good. You know, read for yourself, but also read to your children these kinds of stories. Because you see, your, your kids, us too, they get all kinds of stories. They get the stories at school, they get stories at YouTube, Netflix, and almost all of those stories about how good triumphs over evil. But so often, it's not a picture of biblical goodness. I mean, so often, the picture of good in the stories that we here of good triumphing over evil is about how good used the same kind of methods that evil was using against evil to triumph against evil. In other words, I mean, the classic example is this, an action movie. An action movie is about how an evil person would use evil means to destroy others. And almost without fail, the way that the good character deals with that evilness is to destroy the evil person in the same way, kill them often by the same means. And that same story, that same definition of goodness is often replayed again and again in different versions in the stories around us. But it's not biblical goodness. It's not the kind of restorative goodness that God calls us to do. So you should find some good, good books. And there are great books out there. In fact, there's some good movies this way as well that are 
a picture of biblical goodness. I found a great book about uh, Christians, people who gave their life to Jesus in places like Syria and Jordan and Iraq at the height of the Civil War in the midst of ISIS out there uh, back a, a few years ago. And I began to get my kids together after supper once in a while, and I'd say, let's read the story. And they'd gather there, and I'd begin to read this story, and it was such beautiful stories of God's transforming power. And, and and the kids loved them, and I loved them, and, and the kids began to wait because there's always a moment when the, the transformative power of God in people's lives was so amazing that I'd, I'd get a little emotional. I'd start to choke up. And my kids, they'd laugh at me. They'd say, Dad, you're crying. I said, no, I'm not crying. I'm not crying. I'm not crying. But could you finish reading it? Because I can't finish reading it because I'm so moved by what they're doing. But you know, they're beautiful stories. They're, they're, they're different stories than my kids here and than your kids here. They're stories about what biblical goodness looks like in this world. You should find those stories. and Read them yourself and read them to your kids or your grandkids. It's the second thing. Finally, here's the third way that we cultivate our heart for goodness, and that's just simply do good. When we talk about it, we read about it, but the expectation, the requirement, if you're someone who has been saved, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, is that you do good. The expectation from, from God himself is that somewhere in your world you're seeking to restore by the power of the Holy Spirit a work through your life, the lives of somebody in the city around you, back to the way that God always intended for it to be. So where is that for you? How has God gifted you so that you can be involved in that kind of restorative goodness in the lives of somebody around you? Wherever that is, go and do it. Find the space in your life. Make the call. Sign up. Step out. Try and see that God doesn't do some amazing things. Too many Christians are bored with their Christian walk because they think that following Jesus is all about him, you know, protecting them from the brokenness out there, making sure that their life is good and quiet and peaceful, and they don't understand what biblical goodness is. The call is to go out, to engage the brokenness around you with the hope and the life that we have with Jesus. And when you do that, not only will it make a profound difference in the lives of others, it will change your life. And there will be an enthusiasm and, an, and a, a life in you that you just don't get if you think it's just all about you. The call on your life and mine is to practice biblical goodness, restorative goodness, confrontational goodness, and the beauty of the goodness of God. Let's go and do good. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that you are the source of all good. God, we thank you that the goodness that you call us to is not some sort of milk toast kind of try not to cause trouble, be a goody two-shoes. The goodness that you call us to is active and redemptive and life-giving and restorative, and it changes people's lives. And when we participate in it, it changes our life. God, give us the, the grace and the courage to practice goodness. God, grant us in the midst of a busy life that sometimes turns in on itself, God, the courage to step out, to find that place that you call us to practice goodness. God, pray for us as a church that you would continue to open opportunities for us corporately together as the body of Christ in this city, God, to practice goodness for the sake of the people around us and ultimately that people would come 
to know the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God, we, we, we look to you again to, to lead us in this area, to guide us, that many would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.